Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so very thankful to be gathered here today in person, and we're thankful for the privilege of being able to sing together, um, and the unique privilege of being able to sing outside. We're thankful for the sun, uh, that it's not foggy and cold, uh, that it's bright. Uh, we're thankful for spring, for birds, which sing praise to you along with us. We're thankful for the laughter of kids uh, and teachers. Uh, we're thankful for conversations and, and being together. But most importantly, we are thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That death has been defeated. After a year that has been entirely shaped by the fear of death, to remember and confess as Christians that death is on its way out. Thank you so much, Father, for sending your Son to die in our place, to give his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down, and then giving him the power by the Spirit to take it back up again. Father, we love you. We love Jesus. We love the Spirit. And I pray that we would grow in our love this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Happy Easter. Uh, what a great time to be together, uh, to be, for it to be the first time together. I say this every year to you and to my family and to my students and um, to my own heart. Holy Week is the most important week of the year for Christians. Uh, it's the only time I wear a tie. Um, it's the only time that I come and I dress up sort of old school Southern Christian or whatever, and I wear a tie because it's such a big deal. Easter is such a tremendous day. Without Easter, there is no Christianity. Without Good Friday, there is no Christianity. Easter is the most important day of the most important week of the year for us. Holy Week, in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is of first importance. Dash read, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. These first importance events are what we celebrate every year during Holy Week. They are our hope, Christianity's claim to fame. And all these events were, according to Paul, in accordance with the scriptures. That's what makes them of first importance. Because Jesus' death and resurrection was not out of nowhere. If you're less familiar with Christianity, you might respond to the historical claims of Good Friday and Easter with something like, so what? Like, what's the big deal? What if, so what if Jesus died and rose from the grave? What does that have to do with me? Uh, Good Friday just sounds like another sad assassination of a great man. The resurrection is a cool story. But people are still dying. The world's still a mess. What impact does the resurrection really have? Which is why the events of Holy Week require an explanation. That's what Paul means by in, accor in accordance with the scriptures. It wasn't just a random person, a random uh, guy who died, was buried, and resurrected. These, these events were not out of nowhere, but were the fulfillment of all that the Hebrew scriptures had foretold. They were part of God's plan to redeem people from sin and restore the world to himself. And they had 
been long foretold. This is what Jesus himself claims throughout his life and immediately upon meeting the disciples. He says, don't you know that the Son of Man must suffer? He must be handed over to sinful men and die and be raised on the third day. This had to happen. That that is why these events are of first importance. There is meaning and significance to these events for the Jew first, but also for the whole world. I want to take a moment to recall some of the details this short summary captures. And first, it's the historic fact. It's just an event. It's a fact. The Corinthians, whom Paul is writing to, had begun to doubt the resurrection But they thought they could still be Christian, even if they doubted it. They thought, well, maybe it's like something spiritual. Maybe it's an idea. But you know what? That's okay. Like, Christianity is still good. And to that, Paul responds, there is no reason to be a Christian if the resurrection is not true. It is worthless. You should eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It's done. Like, I would not be doing what I'm doing if the resurrection was not true. But then he says, in essence, that's no matter because, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, In actuality, Christ has been raised. To Christians, this is no myth. It is reality. Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth, a human being, a first century Jew in a small Roman province, a local prophet, priest, and wannabe king, after being unjustly condemned, crucified, and buried on a Friday, was made alive on a Sunday. It happened. And it's such a normal thing for us which is good that it's normal, but it's helpful on Easter to pause and think about what that means. Every Easter, I always pull up and look at the 16th century painting, The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb. It's by Hans Holbein the Younger. It's regarded as one of the most gruesome paintings in Western history. And legend has it that the painter used as his subject a dead body pulled from the river. The novelist Dostoevsky comments about this painting in one of his novels, and he suggests that it has the power to make you lose your faith, to see Jesus dead. It reminds us what it meant for Jesus to be crucified. There was pain and suffering. He was unjust. He was spat upon. Such a terrible day, such a terrible account, but most importantly, there was death. His body stopped. The gospel depends on Jesus actually being dead. And the painting presents that without makeup or explanation. And when we consider this painting, when we consider the reality, when we think about Jesus, the beautiful Jesus of the gospels, just such a a friend of sinners, a healer, so powerful, so good, that his body just ceased to be. It began to decay. And that helps us realize what it meant for him to be raised from the dead. That this fully human but dead Jesus, less than three days after being buried, this Jesus suddenly, miraculously, gloriously twitched to life again. What was that like? What was the process of his body coming back to life? He opened his eyes, he filled his lungs, breathed in, smiled, laughed. Could he have laughed and chuckled? Greeted his father with thanksgiving, got up and walked out. Same person, same body, now imperishable and incorruptible. That is what we confess 
on Easter that death is not always final. In that tremendously beautiful moment, God endorsed, ratified, vindicated all that Jesus claimed and taught and promised. And that's what it means for his death and resurrection to be according to the scriptures. Not only is it a historical fact, not only is it reality, but it ratifies all that Jesus said about himself. Because if the resurrection is true, then everything else Jesus taught is true. So that if Jesus is alive, then he really is the eternal son of God. If Jesus is alive, he really is the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, come to save the world. The kingdom of God truly is at hand, and we are beholden to respond. And what's more, the Bible must be true, because Jesus taught that it was true. The Bible was how he foretold and explained his death and resurrection. If Jesus is who he says he is, then the prophets were right, and everything they taught was true. You cannot believe in the resurrection, but not believe in the Bible. One author writes, once you decide that Jesus really did rise from the dead, the truth and authority of the Bible follow quickly, naturally, and powerfully. And you might struggle to understand the Bible, but you have to believe it. It's got to be true in some way. Even if I don't know how it's true, I may be confused about what it means for faith and science, for sex and gender, politics and wealth, all those things. But whatever it says, it has to be true. And there are some things that are not confusing. If the Bible's true, then God is real, and he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The gods of other peoples are not gods. They might be something, but they're not gods. Yahweh is God alone. This also means sin and judgment is real. And what the Bible says about the human plight is real. The consequence of sin is death. As Jesus taught and the Bible confirms, humanity is estranged from God and in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. The disciples and followers of Jesus thought that their biggest problem was Rome. But in going after death first, Jesus taught them that death was their biggest problem. Sin was their biggest problem. What good is a free country if you still die in it? This is the explanation for the life and death of Jesus. He came to deliver his people from their sins so that they might survive death, washed clean, and made able to stand before the Father, be reconciled to God, and receive eternal life. That is why Jesus died, and that is why he was raised to new life. Res the resurrection is the shout of victory. By it, we learn that God has accepted Jesus' life as a more than adequate sacrifice for sins. Salvation has been achieved and is on offer to all by grace through faith in Christ. We can survive death too if we join ourselves to Jesus. Because he lives, we can live. That is what we celebrate on Easter. Not just that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the grave, but that he did so according to the scriptures, in fulfillment of God's plan, in fulfillment of what had been revealed and taught to the Jews for centuries. He died and rose for the salvation of the world, and it is of first importance. That's the theme of today's sermon, of first importance. Every Easter, we have the opportunity to ask ourselves, are these events of first importance to me today? Are these events of first importance to me? Because there is no way that the Christ's resurrection can be true and unimportant. It can be untrue and unimportant, but it can't be true and unimportant. 
and the Christian has decided that the resurrection is both true and important, of first importance. And so maybe you're new to faith, or maybe you've been a Christian a long time. How important are these truths to you? If you've decided they're true, are they important to you? Would you say that Christ's death and resurrection are of first importance, and how? In a year marked by so much death, how has the resurrection figured into your life? As I said earlier, our entire world was upended in 2020 by the fear of death. Yeah, just realizing like that was what changed everything. It's because people were afraid of death. And so our politics, our economy, our industries, our families, our family rhythms, our education systems, our career trajectories, all of it was turned over. That's the power death has over humanity, the legit power. And how do we engage that narrative, believing in the resurrection? Am I holding fast to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, the death of death? And this is one reason we make a big deal of Holy Week. Because if you're like me, you need to be reminded. And we're reminded every week, every Sunday is a celebration of resurrection. That's why Christians worship on Sunday. Uh, Hopefully we're reminded of that every day. We remember the gospel. We live by it on a daily basis. But it is good and right every year for us to make a huge deal out of it. Because we need big reminders of the hope that we have in Christ. And that's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. They were thinking they could chuck the resurrection and keep the gospel, but he's like, no, like, the gospel is the resurrection. It is the death and resurrection of Christ. To be a Christian and to remain a Christian, we must hear the gospel, we must receive it, we must stand in it, and we must be actively experiencing salvation by means of it. If that is, I hold fast to the word preached to me. And so what keeps me from holding fast to Jesus and these truths in the day-to-day? From keeping them of first importance? In Luke, there are two phrases that stand out to me. One which I'd noticed before, but one which was really new to me this year as I was reading the accounts during Holy Week that jumped out at me. And both phrases describe Jesus' disciples. They describe people like you and me in the face of these historic truths. One describes the disciples in the face of the cross, and the other describes the disciples in the face of the resurrection. And so since it's Easter, let's start with the resurrection. And so put yourself, imagine yourself in the disciples' place. You witness his death on Friday. You witness his burial and have wept all through Saturday. Devastated. And now you're a witness to his resurrection. He appears in front of you in the flesh, not as a ghost, not as a spirit. His body, he is there. You are eyewitnesses. You have hugged Jesus. You have talked with him. You have watched him eat fish. And the crazy thing is, the kind and compassionate thing is that the Gospels tell us 
that some still doubt it. It's so kind of them to indict themselves in that way, right? To like, to talk about themselves as doubters, even in the face of the real Jesus. Some still doubted. Why were they doubting? And Luke tells us, Luke 24, 36, they're in the upper room. They're talking about rumors of the appearance of Jesus, the empty tomb. And then all of a sudden, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Luke uses this phrase. He tells us that the disciples disbelieved for joy. What does that mean? And basically, the disciples in that moment are frozen in the face of a miracle, thinking to themselves, this is too good to be true. This is too good to be true. What is clear to me rationally is impossible for me emotionally. To disbelieve for joy is to believe the resurrection is too good to be true. Now, all of them moved past that moment really quickly. It was just a flicker. When Jesus asked for something to eat, it restarted their brains and hearts, and suddenly they realized it was Jesus in the flesh. But there are times when our hearts retreat to that moment, and we see that in the Gospels too. In Matthew, right before Jesus' ascension, they would have spent off and on 40 days with Jesus quite a bit of quality time with him. And in Matthew 28, verse 16, it says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And so they still have a tendency to doubt the resurrection, to disbelieve for joy. Now, were they doubting the historical reality? It's unlikely. Did they think the last 40 days was a collective hallucination? Probably not. Like, they were probably pretty sure that it that it was the real Jesus. But I wonder if they doubted the relevance, the effectiveness, the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. That maybe it happened for Jesus, but what had happened for them. And it causes them to hold themselves back from Christ. I know the resurrection is losing its place of first importance when I'm holding myself back from Jesus struggling to trust him with the important things, things that become of first importance in its place, right? Maybe the resurrection is true for him, but is it true for me? And so I live my life with this sinking feeling that everything important to me will eventually die, that the resurrection isn't true. That's what it means to disbelieve the resurrection, to believe that everything important in life eventually dies. Nothing is forever. Hope is misleading. Death is coming. And not just coming naturally, but as a Christian, with the way Jesus talks about taking up our cross and following him, death for the Christian might come preternaturally, right? It might come in advance. What Jesus asks of me brings more loss in my life. And so with that fear, I tend to guard everything. My belongings and my reputation, my health, my time, my comforts, my relationships, my emotions and dreams. I protect myself because death is coming. Resurrection isn't real. We live in a closed universe where what you see is all you get. 
That's what it means to disbelieve for joy, to hold back so as not to get my hopes up, to tell myself it's too good to be true. Pretty soon, though, the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples and they begin to believe the resurrection. Uh, They no longer hold themselves back from Jesus. They trust him. They trust the way of Jesus embodied in his resurrection. And what is the way of Jesus? It is eternal life through death. That's the way of Christ. Eternal life through death. The disciples thought Jesus would bring eternal life without death. They never in a million years thought that Jesus would bring eternal life through death. And instead of that being it with death, death being over, he invites us to take up our own cross, to take up our own deaths and follow him, to lose our life that we might find it. To receive resurrection by being united with him in his death. Is the resurrection too good to be true for you? Are you holding yourself back in case it's not true? Now, after 2020, uh, which is going longer, right, <laughs> for, for many of us, many of us aren't in a too good, tr- too good to be true moment. Like, that's not how we sort of feel about our lives right now is that it's too good to be true. That's not our struggle. We're not witnessing a lot of miracles. And so that brings me to the second sign that the gospel message has lost its first importance place in our lives. Regarding the resurrection, we disbelieve for joy. And regarding the cross, we sleep for sorrow. I had never noticed that phrase in Scripture until this year, reading. And just saw it as like a clear pattern. It's, it's so much like disbelieving for joy. They slept for sorrow. Uh, many of you know the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus goes to the garden. He brings his disciples. He's praying to his father, asking, pleading, is there any other way? Do I have to die? Is that the only way of salvation? He's afraid of what's to come. He's wrecked with sadness, sweating blood. And all the accounts show Jesus bringing his disciples, but when Jesus goes to check on them, he finds them sleeping. And I had never seen this before. It's not in the Matthew account, and and I just am not I guess, an astute reader, and so I never noticed, you know, you always wonder, well, why were they sleeping? And Luke tells us why. It wasn't because they were lazy. It wasn't because they didn't care. It wasn't just because they were tired. Luke twenty-two forty-five says, and when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They were just sad. And they were just so sad so overwhelmed with sadness that they just decided to turn their brains off. I can't do this anymore, Jesus. I love you. I believe in you. But now that I realize that you're going to go get yourself killed, that's what you're doing, and it's very clear to me what you're about to do. It's just too sad, and so I'm going to sleep. And I think most of us can relate to that being confronted with death, with loss, with grief, with difficulty, with brokenness, and just shutting down. I'm done. And maybe you sleep. Maybe you drink. Maybe you just go through the motions. Regardless, in some way, you sleep for sorrow. 
Jesus isn't asking them to stay up and pray that God would save him from the cross. That's not what he's asking them to do. We often have lots of energy for that. I have a lot of energy to pray earnestly that God would save me from death and loss. But once I realize that some kind of death is inevitable, it has to be passed through, then I can, it can wear me out and I shut down. And that's why Jesus asked them to stay awake, not to protect themselves from death, but to protect themselves from temptation. In verse 46, he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Rise and pray that you may have strength to endure death because only through death comes resurrection. Resurrection is beautiful, but it always follows death. In the kingdom, for now, everything important still dies. And that's important to know about Christianity. Easter is a beginning, not an end. Christ's empty tomb is just the first fruits. When we celebrate the resurrection, we're not saying that death is over. Not yet. Christ is still finishing off death. He is actively conquering death. Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And until then, death stings. So when we celebrate the resurrection, we're not saying that death is over. We're saying that death is mortally wounded. Death is dying. Death is ultimately powerless. And for the Christian, the power that death still has has been redirected so that in Christ, death only kills what must be killed. It only kills what should be killed. And it leaves me safe, clean, pure, holy. For all those in Christ, death is good like Good Friday is good, hard but good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Talking about a seed, seeds don't sprout until they die, until they're buried. So that in the kingdom, everything important still dies, but with faith in Christ, it lives again forever and renewed. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And so as Christians, we celebrate Easter even while we know that everything important to us will die. It will pass through the fire. But we know that with faith in Christ, it will be made alive again. And so one way you know you're dealing with a false gospel is that it's a gospel which doesn't include death. You can have salvation without death. Believe God and you won't suffer pain. That's not the way of Jesus. Martin Luther wrote, God receives none but those who are forsaken. He restores health to none but those who are sick. He gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Jesus taught resurrection, which is amazing, but resurrection always follows death. We get the pearl of great price by selling everything we have. We receive forgiveness by confessing sin. We gain life by losing life. And the disciples, understandably, were really slow to believe this. I'm slow to believe it. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, death is always bad. And so we abhor death as Christians. It's always final. It makes perfect sense to avoid it. But at some point, the disciples stopped avoiding death. 
when the resurrection settled into their heart, when they stopped disbelieving for joy, they stopped sleeping for sorrow. The way of the cross followed, and that's how we know they truly believed in the resurrection, because they just started killing off all the important things in their life. They just threw it aside. Their belongings, their reputations, their health and time and relationships and emotions, even their own lives, they let it die because they believed the resurrection was true. All of it's yours, Jesus. Take it. Kill it. I don't care. I trust you because I know that everything that's important will come back to me. It will be resurrected. I will be resurrected. That's how we know the disciples began believing in the resurrection. That's how I know that I'm believing the resurrection. When I start letting go, killing off important things to my life in faith because I know they'll come back to me. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so let us no longer disbelieve for joy. The resurrection is not too good to be true. It is true. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And if the resurrection is not too good to be true, then the cross is not too hard to endure. You don't have to sleep for sadness. For the joy set before you, you can endure, as Jesus did. Let us no longer sleep for sadness. Sleeping doesn't fix sadness. Only the cross of Christ fixes sadness. Because only through the cross do we receive resurrection. And so this morning, I ask you, are these events, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of first importance to you? And what does that mean, for them to be of first importance? Let these two truths, historic truths, they really happened. Theological truths, they had meaning and significance for every human being on the planet. Cosmic truths, existential truths, let them become and remain of first importance to you. Hold fast to them even as these truths shape and motivate and direct our lives, we remember that Good Friday and Easter is about what Christ has done, not what we do. That's the beautiful thing, that these truths that we're confessing are not about ourselves, really, right? They're about Jesus. They're about something that's already happened. And so the world can be doing all kinds of stuff to us, can be beating us up. We can be beating ourselves up, but we can still say, yes, but Jesus died and was raised from the dead. That is true, and I believe it, and that is where my hope is. Of first importance is not our own actions. And how many of us, that's of first importance to us, even in a religious, spiritual way, but it's a gospelless way. Your actions are not of first importance. Your goodness, your righteousness, your morality, it is not of first importance. Jesus' righteousness is of first importance. He is the one who determines our future. Of first importance is not our own actions, but Christ's actions on our behalf, that he died, that he rose. Jesus died according to the scriptures, meaning that he died for mankind as an atonement for sin, paying the debt that we incurred because of our willful rejection of God. He paid that debt, And Jesus rose from the grave according to the scriptures, meaning that his death was effective. In our poverty, I would have been paying that debt for all eternity. 
But because Jesus was perfect and because he was God, he paid it in a moment. Our faith is not about what we can do, but about what Jesus has done to whom we are joined. And so be reminded this Easter, church family, receive the gospel, stand in it, be saved by it, hold fast, take heart. Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried, and was raised according to the scriptures on the third day. And God be praised. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the gospel, for the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. We're thankful for the historic fact. We're so thankful that, the, that God's death and resurrection is not just a metaphor. It's not just like a, a thing we would put on our wall, like a motivational poster. Because I need so much more than a metaphor and a motivational poster. I need something that is bedrock cosmic truth, historic truth that I can anchor myself to, that I can hold on to when this world is wild. Thank you for the gospel, which is secure. Thank you for what it accomplishes, that you have cleansed me of my sin by grace through faith, not of works. I can't boast about it, that because of what Jesus has done, I am cleansed. I am forgiven. Thank you for the resurrection, which gives me hope that on the other side of death, little deaths that I experience, and also really huge, big, final deaths, ultimate death, on the other side of that, when I'm in Christ, there's eternal life with no death. We look forward to that day. Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to sing together, to confess together, to encourage one another. Father, help us to Make these things today and every day of first importance in our life. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.